You're listening to The Outspoken Bible, a podcast from Scottish Bible Society with Fiona Stewart, Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Well, welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of The Outspoken Bible. I am Fiona Stewart and as usual I'm joined by my friend Neil Glover, but unfortunately Neil, no Jen Robertson today. No Jen today. today. No Jen. No. Jen, if you're She's indisposed. I hope you're okay. Do you think Jen will be listening? I hope she will. I don't I know. Mean, I'll I'll be like a mixed experience. Just, well, I like to think she doesn't just listen because she's in it. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so she's in disposed. She's she's not very well. She's not. She's it's, just, it's not COVID or anything like that. But um, she's not able to to join us today. But she has sent along a pal, which is nice. <laughs> We're joined by somebody from the subs bench, if you like. We're joined by Adrian Armstrong, who is, we've discovered, well, he's an old friend of mine, but he's also, we've discovered that he's, he's got lots of connections with Neil as well. So yeah, it's so a, a Adrian and I, it turns out, Adrian, we were at the same year at school and we were at neighbouring secondary schools in Edinburgh, I think. That is right, yeah. It was amazing to discover these things. So it's always good to discover links. Ross Aitken. I thought, oh, I knew that guy. And you knew Carl McLeod. You were at primary school with Carl McLeod, who's my friend. That's right, Carla and I have known each other since we were five, yes, so there you go. She's just texted me saying, yes, I knew Adrian all the way from primary one, exclamation mark, Look exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I bump into his dad quite a lot when I'm walking Jack. I think Jack's, um, I think Jack's her dog, not her partner. And uh, she says, lovely man. Say hi to Adrian for me. Good. So I, I think most people who live in Cram and spend most of the time trying to avoid bumping into my father because he is a lovely man, and uh, but he talks an awful lot, and I can't think where that has fallen down in terms of the generations. I can't imagine that at all. As somebody who has known you, Adrian, also since primary school days, I can't imagine that at all. Anyway, shout out to the Armstrongs if they're listening. Um, so yeah, we are delighted, Adrian, that you've you've come in to join us today. Now, Adrian, you are the head of Bible engagement. For the world? Uh, For the Scottish Bible Society and therefore particularly Scotland. So I'm part of a team called National Ministries and that nation we're serving is Scotland. Uh, And as all our work, we're always working uh, through the church in Scotland. So my role would be working with church leaders, uh, meeting with them, talking about their needs and then producing and writing uh, resources uh, to help people get into the Bible. Um, And that's both people who are inside church and people who are outside of church. Uh, We're living in a time on the one hand where there's decline uh, within the church in Scotland, uh, and that is a great concern to us all, but a time of huge revival of interest uh, in uh, Christianity and particularly in the Bible. And a stat I love to put out there from the 2015 report uh, of uh, called Transforming Scotland, an amazing report, a snapshot of faith in Scotland. There are more people outside of the church in Scotland who are reading the Bible at least once a month as there are inside the church reading the Bible at least once a month. Quite incredible. So that's about quarter of a million people. This is based on on what people have said in a response to a survey. So we have an army of people out there, not in church. They would mm-hmm. say they're not Christians and they are interested in the Bible. And that's what I do. That's great. So, that's yeah, so, so when we say Bible engagement, it's about helping people so get to grips with that. I'm really interested in that, Adrian. How, how are people reading the Bible? Is it, on, is it on phones or is it in actual paper Bible? I said actual paper Bible as if the actual <laughs> Bible was the written one. Yeah, yeah, so that's one of the things. Um, that, that particular survey doesn't get behind in terms of how how people are doing. There's a number of other surveys um, uh, from other parts of the country which are suggesting that one of the things that people are doing is reading with friends. 
Now, of course, that's that's what we're doing. An outspoken Bible, we're reading with friends and having conversations about the Bible. And it's often people who come into contact with other Christians and they're taking the opportunity to, to read the Bible uh, with a friend who isn't a Christian or discuss it. And so there was another survey, and I forget because I don't have it at the fingertips in terms of how people are doing that. Um, there is engagement um, online. Uh, there's, there's digital things happening. So a lot of people are connecting that way and the ability to do it. And interestingly, print still trumps it. People like a book in their hand, um, which is why at Scottish Bible Society, a lot of focus we're doing is actually on printed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Bible Bible portions. You know, eating the whole Bible at once is quite a difficult thing. Well, we shouldn't actually eat our Bibles. Obviously, it's a metaphor, um, but um, but portions help. You know, a little yeah. bit of the Bible to, to get into. But but reading with other people is one of the big ones. Um, as ever, uh, people engage with people. The vast, vast majority of people in Scotland are not hostile to Christianity. That there are some who, who are hostile, a very small minority. But you know, most people are perhaps neutral. But there are this vast army of people who are interested, and more and more people get getting interest. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with the poet Malcolm Gite uh, last year, who spoke at a conference, and I was talking to him about the sort of questions he's being asked as someone who is 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 head of an Oxbridge uh, chapel. Um, and has people coming in and out. And he said, it used to be these big questions people were asking was, you know, how does a good God allow suffering? That was the question. But now the question is, uh, can your God uh, and the God you speak about from your Bible, can he help me in my suffering? You know, mm. people recognize their need for help in life uh, and, and need for wisdom. And of course, the Bible provides that in abundance. And if God is able to provide that with people and Bible, uh, that is a that is a wonderful thing. Yeah, that, that's um, a real challenge, Adrian. I think to to the confidence in scripture because I I think I don't want to speak for our whole generation, but but I I think I often lack the confidence that somebody is going to be interested in in uh -huh. knowing about the Bible, and I'm quite challenged about that when I when I speak to people in their twenties, because uh -huh. I do think there's more of an openness to do that sort of one to one reading the Bible with somebody talking about what scripture says, and and. Yeah. Yeah, there's a challenge that comes through that Transforming Scotland report, isn't there, around that? There is. Well, there's another report done by Church of England um, called Talking Jesus. That was done about two or three years ago. If you've seen that, um, Rachel from Church of England, who uh, runs their sort of mission side of things, brilliant, brilliant uh, leader. Uh, uh, and uh, she had this report, Talking Jesus. And the amazing thing about that is, is, is it talks about the effect, interviewing people who aren't Christians, who don't go to church, about their conversations with other Christians. The huge discovery of that is that the vast majority of people not only welcome the opportunity uh, to, to, to speak about uh, faith, uh, but that they're actually positive towards it. And I think when it gets down to it, you know, it's, it's something like, you know, 30%, 40% of people who are asked said that they would like to have conversations mm -hmm. and would like to know more about mm -hmm. Christianity. Now, that is a big number. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, as I'm often saying to people, you know, you know, often in Scotland, we're living out of a narrative decline, you know, particularly mm -hmm. those of us in the larger denominations. But of course, the actual picture is of an explosion of ethnic churches, church plants growing. God is doing some amazing things of a huge interest in this. And um, as you say, it's a question of confidence, Fiona. Mm -hmm. um, we're sitting there. That's our narrative. We're feeling threatened. We're feeling we're declining. But actually, the opportunities are out there. Yeah. And actually, we just need to have confidence yeah. uh, in the Bible and, and yeah. in the God of the Bible just to have conversations with people. Yeah. Um, and and, and, it's and listening conversations, isn't it? It's conversations where we're listening to what people are really saying and, and, and really interested in it. And like you say, like you were saying about Mark, Malcolm Guide, listening to the questions that people are actually asking rather than coming with a, a yeah, set of very, answers that maybe we had in back in the 90s. Very much so. so. Yeah. Very much yeah. so. 
Fascinating. Well, um, there'll be more opportunity to, to uh, chat to you because I think you're going to join us for our next episode as well. So we'll hear a bit more about that. And uh, I think later on you're going to do a, a, an equivalent of a Jen's Gem, Adrian's E-List. I, I am. It can't possibly compare with Jen's Gem, <laughs> um, even though I'm further up the alphabet in AA. Um, it's it's not going to be quite a you know, triple A standard with Jen. So so I am oh. a poor substitute, definitely off the subs bench to keep your <laughs> subs bench to keep your Euro 2020s uh, chat going. And uh, yes. But I will, I will put in a typical Scottish performance, and I say that as a man who cheered, cheered on Scotland from the stands, having Willy Wonka's golden ticket to oh. Hamden with my son on, I mean, on, on Monday, oh. which was amazing. Oh, there's a topic. Of, oh, we can't. Well, oh, oh, I want to pursue that conversation, but but time is pressing, so we'll maybe come back to that later on. What a magnificent thing! Great. Keep the listener feedback coming. Don't forget, there's the there's the button on the website, or uh, you can contact us if you if you know us directly. Now, today we're going to go on. We're going to talk. Uh, we're going into this new series. Uh, in the Old Testament story of Joseph, thinking under the theme of the triumph of grace. Uh, we're going to be doing that for the next five episodes, and that's going to coincide with the release of a brand new resource from SBS, which is entitled Joseph and the Triumph of Grace. So more on that later. But before that, it's time for Glover's Off. So this morning, assuming it, you are listening in the morning, we're in the morning. This morning, I'd like to talk about one of my favourite genres of cooking, which I think is neglected, which is the tray bake. Um, and I, it was interesting when we were talking about this before, um, your, um, your voice immediately picked up when I mentioned it. I love tray bakes. In fact, I think along with curries and pizzas, tray bakes are my favourite genre of cooking. Do you get a genre? Is it a genre of cooking? Is that what you call it? I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I was just thinking about the number of carbohydrates you've got there. but I know, it's a lot. Um, yeah. and, and what, what struck me recently about tray bakes, it's, it's, it's absolutely neglected. And, I mean, people talk about, in the world of cooking, I think it's, it's neglected. But what was interesting was I think churches do tray bakes better than anyone you know, we mm. we often we often malign the church and say, oh, we're 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 very bad in terms of I don't know our buildings, or you know, we can be a bit lackluster. But I my experience of church tray bakes is that they are far superior to even any. They're definitely superior to the kind of processed ones that you get in supermarkets. Yeah. But I would argue even better uh, than um, the ones you get in, in coffee shops. Um, I, I I try to think of different tray bakes. I love this Rocky Road, uh, Millionaire Shortbread, Tiffin. A Malteser slice proly, white chocolate Malteser slice is probably my favourite, along with white chocolate Rocky Road. Um, uh, and there are peppermint, also something with a peppermint. Oh yeah, do you like those ones with the green? The oh yeah, peppermint I would slice. Mm-hmm. Peppermint slice, nice. And then there's a Northern Irish um, distant cousin of the tray bake, which I also love, which is Fifteens. Have you ever had them? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I know you get them elsewhere, but they're they're big in Northern Ireland. Um, and recently. So I think churches do these. That's about the quantities, these... isn't it? The fifteens. What's that? Is it? Is that about the quantities? I yeah, think, isn't it? it's, a, it's a, about the ingredients mm-hmm. you put in. And yeah, fifteen of each thing. Yeah. Um, and I thought the the thing about uh, that made me think about tray bakes is we've got um, a children's holiday club happening soon, and I put out uh, two messages. I said to people, uh, "Could people please sign up to pray for our holiday club?" And with the initial email. Uh, people got back and said, yes, we're happy to pray. I got 19 folks. We're hoping to get 100, but at the moment it's 19. And then I sent out an email saying, um, could you please, could anyone be up for making tray bakes 
for the holiday club and i was absolutely inundated i mean it turned out to be the same number it was 19 folks but just email after email came in from people saying oh yeah i'd love to to cook tray bakes and a and what it was it was a completely different constituency of people so the the prayers and the tray bakers were were different different folks and i think there's something of the if i can use this discussion there's something of the martha mary thing going on there where the 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 mary's all wanted to pray and the martha's all wanted to make tray bakes um and and i think what jesus teaches us is that we need we need both in the church but i love the fact that a uh, i think churches do tray bakes better than than anyone else they're a gift to the world and if you're a tray baker i think this morning in uh, glovers of i want to pay tribute to the tray bakers of the world and of the church how lovely and can i suggest i think you should launch a sort of initiative to to get people to combine the mary martha thing yeah so as you make the tray bake you pray for the person who's going to eat it yeah do you, th- you could do taste tests on that you could yes, like you, you have some experiment where you double blind where you tasted the prayed over tray bake versus the unprayed over tray bake yes I mean, and you could then affirm whether or not it was someone's true calling. Yeah, although yes. you'd worry, you'd worry if it was like one of these uh, prayer surveys. I know people have done lots of different prayer surveys, but there's, there was a prayer survey where people were prayed for and their their heart conditions were worse. No, yeah, seriously, yeah, yeah. Wow, um, it, nobody's shouting about that survey, no, are they? It's, it's complex. It was. Um, it is. Oh, I need to go and look up all the results. But yeah, I think it was something to do with the pressure of feeling that you had to perform or something like that. But it was okay. interesting. Mm. interesting. Interesting. Adrian, what's your favourite tray pick? I'd probably go on Rocky Road, mm. to mm. be honest. Yeah, I'd go there. It's a classic. Neil, what, what did, you, did you say what your, your yeah, favourite Yeah, no, was? I'd vary. There's the, uh, our um, local baker does a white chocolate Rocky Road, and I think that's probably my favourite. It's total sh- sugar hit. I don't go into subtlety when it comes into confectionery. <laughs> Clearly not. So um, can we come to the story of Joseph? I don't know if he enjoyed a tree bake or not. Uh, what we all think about Joseph, or certainly people of my generation think about Joseph, is he had his Technicolor dream coat. Mm. And I would love us actually to kick off the conversation by thinking, does that, does does Joseph the Technicolor dream coat, does the Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff, does, it, does that prejudice and influence and shape our understanding of this story? I'm throwing that out to the room. I thought there was a moment. Now, we're dealing with this resource. What's the resource that the Scottish Bible Society have produced, the, the cartoon resource? It's called Joseph and the Triumph of Grace. Uh, it, it, what's the hymn? There's a, there's a hymn, isn't it? The triumphs of his grace. There is. Uh-huh. What was that? A thousand it's over a thousand, over a thousand tongues, tongues. Over a thousand tongues. Um, yeah, now, there's a moment in that book you might want to, I don't know if you're going to talk about the origins of that book, but there's a moment in the book where the, the coat is featured and there's no mention of it having colours. Was that a deliberate choice? That's interesting. Um, Jason Ramasamy, who's done the illustrations for for us, you know, is always very thoughtful. Everything he does, every pen stroke ha- has a deliberate choice. I seem to remember one of the things about the project was it was so collaborative. He had the idea. Um, he's the illustrator, uh, had this idea of um, of a cartoon side, and then we would have the whole text of Genesis as well. Um, initially just the story of Je- Joseph, then we thought the whole of Genesis. But 
yes, um, I think he very deliberately chose not to feature it so much. Um, there is dispute, of course, in the biblical text, is a coat of many colours? Is it, in fact, just have long sleeves? Yeah. Um, you know, we're told there's a note there in any Bible that, that, that it has different things. So I think, you know, you, you get cultural appropriations of things, um, of, of, of the Bible text. People pick up on a thing and uh, the technicolor dream coat has become the big thing. And actually the coat doesn't feature much. It's not the big thing in the story. It's the man in the coat mm -hmm. that, that, that becomes it. Yes, and I so I think that what's going on there, back to your question, which was about Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, can we never now escape Joseph? Mm. Can we escape Andrew Lloyd Webber when we get to this, mm -hmm. this story? Or do we want to escape um, Andrew Lloyd Webber? Is he now part of the essential narrative tradition or Tim Rice? And and, and it's interesting because, yes, as, as you say, the Hebrew um, is ambiguous. Does it mean coat of long sleeves? Or, I mean, it's a special coat. We do know that. I, for what it's worth, I think it's a fabulous title, Technicolor Dream Coat. I just think it's great. Yeah. And I have to say, I absolutely love the musical. I mean, it's such, such a clever, clever musical. It was, um, it was I think it was only the second or third one they produced. And it came out of a, a time where there was a, a penchant for... <laughs> Uh, producing musicals based on Old Testament stories because uh, yeah. there's one, um, there's a Daniel one as well, Daniel Daniel Man Jazz, which is not them, yes. but it was produced at a similar time. Um, I think Joseph was developed in, with schools as well. Yeah, wasn't that's it? right. It was originally because that's why there's a narrator and so on. It's, I think uh -huh. Tim Rice mm -hmm. wrote it when he was at school, just about, or he was oh, maybe. Yeah, he was really young mm -hmm. when they produced mm -hmm. it. Yeah, um, and it, yeah, and it's the, the lyrics certainly stick, don't they? It's, you, you know, it, it's it's embedded deep within our. Oh, they're 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 so clever. So I I just think my my, my own take on it is all great stories in, invite invention. That's why I never get annoyed at you know that there's a whole rant, for example, the nativity story, where um, people say, oh, there was no donkey and there was no innkeeper's wife, and we've just made up all these different things. And of course, in Love Actually, Richard Curtis then adds lobsters and stuff like that. But but all great story. In, invites accretion, it invites invention, it invites in the Jewish term midrash, and and therefore I mm -hmm. applaud Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, and I don't want to get all puritanical about it. That's their take, that's that's their move, and and the basic theme that they draw out, I think, is is destiny in the face of adversity, which I, I think is probably mm -hmm. one of the big themes that that well you pick up on it in the title Triumph of Grace. Um, so yeah, yeah, big fan of. Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things, of course, as you read through, and I had to look up some books on this, is that actually this is a story which has inspired art mm. probably more than any other biblical story. Really? So I'm sitting here, you know, reading reading something, and you've got all these poems that come out of it in very early sort of in the Persian sort of period, and coming out uh, on all of this. Uh, that then then people begin to imagine around the story as well, thinking of other characters who are maybe not mentioned mm -hmm. as well. And um, paintings, of course, you know, Tintoretto, Rembrandt, all painted, you know, scenes from this. Uh, Johann Strauss has a ballet out of this. Uh, we've we've got um, all sorts of other classical works come out of this. Um, so you've got plays, you've got poems. You've got music, what, what, everything. What, what were people? Um, what are the classic themes? Because often you, you, there's a uh -huh. there's a thing that people paint over and over again. So you know the Annunciation uh -huh. of Mary is probably one of the most painted things in all art. So what what scene do people paint in the Joseph story? Well, the interesting one is you have, have a number of different ones. Um, you know, 
uh, a number of them come on, on Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So mm-hmm. that becomes a, a, a big, big thing. That's Tintoretto um, uh, and, and, and Rembrandt. Um, Rembrandt seems to have quite a few of, of, of these, I understand. So he paints a few different scenes from this. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not unusual, of course, because a lot of these artists were commissioned to paint biblical scenes and, and, and do other things in, in, in as well. And Rembrandt's got another one of Joseph uh, with, with Jacob dying, blessing his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, so different points of, of the story are picked up. And of course, one of the things that great paintings do, of course, uh, is, is that they take a biblical story and, and then you look at it and then through the artist's eyes, you're able to encounter the biblical story afresh. So it's exactly what you were saying, Neil. Um, you know, I, I jokingly called them cultural appropriations of the biblical text. What it is, yeah. is, is, is testament to the fact that the Bible inspires people's imagination. Now we're in Genesis today. You know, the fact that this is a God who gifts us creativity and so appreciates beauty and color and diversity in his creation. The fact that then his word comes to us and it inspires artists and poets and songwriters and musicians to produce just a multiplicity of just riffing on the themes, you know? I mean, I don't think we have a Hendrix guitar solo on it, you know, but we should. No, but but it's interesting because mm-hmm. coming back to Joseph and the Technical Dreamcoat, there's the, there's the classic Pharaoh Elvis um, analogy, isn't there? But, but And effectively, that's what's happening, isn't it? They're taking that story and they're embedding it into the kind of popular culture, the popular understanding. And I mean, I don't know what... Um, what Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, I don't think there was an intention to to do this, but like a lot of these painters in the Middle Ages, that they're they're setting it into a context that people will then connect with because it connects with something in their own their own understanding. Yeah, interesting, interesting. All right, so so thinking about the, this the, the the other thing about the story, of course, is that it takes up a goodly chunk of the book of Genesis. So from chapter 37 through to 50, arguably chapter 38, which we'll come back to later, um, it sort of sits as a slight anomaly with the, the Joseph story, but it's obviously part of the, the wider story. What, why why is it that that there are so many chapters devoted to this this one account? Is it just about Joseph? Is it a broader thing? That's a good, I mean, really interesting. Why so many chapters? Why this that we were talking before? I mean, the David narrative is probably the only Old Testament story that's as long as this. Um, why so long? I mean, it, I mean, it, it's just an incredible story. It, it's, it's. I think the the climax of the story, and you can argue about where the climax lies, is one of the most beautiful moments in the in the whole of the Bible. Um, I, I think. Why a long story? I wonder, you know that thing, Fiona, you're an artist. You know that mm. thing where artists say, mm-hmm. you know, I've got to go where the story takes me? That I wonder if they sat down, they didn't sit down, whoever wrote this, it might have been Moses, um, and said, oh, I need to I need to spend this amount of chapters on this. I think I think the story just took them there. It's, it's a story about the complex relationship mm-hmm. they have with Egypt. It's a story about the... It's also a story which is curiously a bit of a biblical dead end, a bit, bit, bit of a biblical cul-de-sac, because the real story mm-hmm. is chapter 38, mm-hmm. as far as they're concerned. That's the, the if, if the Jacob story is about, the word seed is really important in, in Genesis. And later on, um, my friend Desi Alexander, who's a biblical Old Testament scholar, he, he just writes about seed all the time. Um, but but the key thing about 38 is that's where the seed goes. 
of the promise. And there's not a lot of seed in the Joseph story. It's a kind of attractive cul-de-sac. I actually wonder if it's almost to say the question, what on earth did we get involved Mm -hmm. with Egypt for? Because that was going Mm -hmm. to lead to disaster. I mean, I'd agree. I mean, there's a lot of things picked up that we've already picked up through the patriarchs, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. Going down to Egypt is, is always a bad thing. And of course, that mm-hmm. prefigures, and if it is Moses that's written, you know, these first five books of the Bible, you know, he's looking back from that sort of perspective. And so you've got this sense of going down to Egypt being a bad thing, and now finally someone goes down to Egypt, and the first two goes down to Egypt almost involuntarily. It's always been famine it's been connected to, so famine's there again, so it's a big theme, but goes down as a slave. So Joseph almost is prefiguring an entire nation who are going to be enslaved. Although as we were chatting earlier on, you know, one of the difficult things about Joseph's story is that he in the end is the one that enslaves the entire nation of Egypt as their hunger drives them to sell their land and even offer themselves as as slaves. So it's all of that. But it's also these great things driving the Genesis narrative are these amazing promises that God makes to Abraham of of a land and of a people and the fact that that people will be a blessing to all nations. So as as we end Genesis, as we end the Joseph story, they're not in the land. Um, Mm -hmm. Their their existence as a people is there. They have expanded the initial 70 that have gone down. You know, you have to wait till Exodus to discover that actually they do expand into those numbers. But of course, all of that is under threat. And there's this great thing throughout the story of, 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 of Genesis. What God promises seems to be impossible way back to when, you know, Abraham's promise is going to be a great nation. He says, well, what, what, what can you give me? I've got no children. A servant's going to inherit everything I have and nothing I do. Nothing of my life is going to matter. What can you possibly give me, God? And God says, I'm going to give you a son, even though that seems utterly impossible. Your seed will come mm-hmm. from Sarah and from you. Um, so God makes these promises, and then He makes it very, very hard for Himself, it seems, to actually fulfil them. Yeah. So, so the minute that that Abraham gets the promise, suddenly uh-huh. Sarah can't have yeah. a, mm-hmm. have a child, and it's the same here in in Genesis. That the minute this, that, for example, Joseph gets the dreams at the start. We're not we're not doing too many plot spoilers in this podcast. I think what we're allowed yeah. to say he has dreams. Yeah, yeah. yeah you we're can say that. Say that? Yeah, you can get away with that. Um, <laughs> the the minute he has dreams about being dominant, he then has an incident in which he's utterly well. He's almost killed by them, mm-hmm. and it and of course it points forward to Jesus as well because the minute we have Jesus um, born to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, all the prophecies have come true, and then all of a sudden. Jesus has to go down to yeah. Egypt. Yeah. And Matthew, of course, later on will say this is an essential part of the Jesus story out mm-hmm. of Egypt. I called my son. Mm-hmm. I, I, think there's, I think there's also a pastoral thing for those of us listening at the moment because we've all got points in our life where we're going, where's mm-hmm. this going? Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be different from this. I, I saw a, a Facebook shoved an advert in front of me yesterday, which was... A guy saying, are you approaching the age of 50? Uh, It's clearly targeted ad uh, from Facebook. Are you approaching the age of 50 and feel that your life has not turned out the way that you wanted it to? I mean, what a brilliant start to an ad because every 50-year-old is going, yeah, yeah, it hasn't happened. That's that's the human experience. And this is Joseph's thing. He has this great dream. He thinks life's going to turn out with him in charge of his brothers. And then everything goes wrong. And it, and I, I think this is an essential part of the human story of to really ask questions of God. 
how are you going to get me back to the thing I thought I was going to have mm -hmm. when I was a teenager or I was in my 20s? And that, that, of course, is the great value of the sustained narrative of Joseph that we get. You know, for everyone else, it's like, you know, a little time later for Abraham, some years later and things. And, and, and God pops up, you know, over these decades of, of things in Abraham's life. And it's all quite fragmented. You know, Isaac, we don't really get very much of at all. Uh, Jacob, we get we get bits of, you know, we get some great sort of parts of his and discover, you know, gosh, he was a cheat and a bit of a rotter as well. So it's not surprised that some of his sons have a few things to learn when they come to it. But that sense of this sustained story, which tells about life not working out as we we, we, we expect, mm -hmm. um, all the things that God promises, they, 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 they are not there. What is happening here? And, and you're absolutely right, Neil that more than anything else, and I think that's why we have chosen to, 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 to do this uh, as, a, as a book, because of the great help it can provide to people uh, as they're going through life and trying to make sense of it. Um, and, and of course, Joseph is born into a blended family with favorites, with difficulties, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we felt that was just such a contemporary thing. This is not an mm -hmm. easy, straightforward, silver spoon existence for him. There's wealth in the family, but there's poverty of relationship. There is mm -hmm. the difficult uh, you know, problems of, of, of mums who've not been able to have children and then are competing with each other. And then, you know, all the mistreatment of women that happens at Jacob's hands of concubines mm -hmm. and wives and having favorites before that ever shows up in his own family. And the realization that that, that is our story too, that the things that other people do wrong, the things that we do wrong, all these, all these things come in and they impact on us and they come down through the generation. And the question is, is a fresh start possible? Can God do anything about this? Am I just destined to basically be marked by the things that I pass through, by the things that people do to me? You know, is, is it possible for God to make a change in that? And of course, that question in, in, in Genesis is, is initially the whole world, the whole of creation. And then it comes down to this, one, this family. And in the Joseph story, we actually get about Joseph, this one life, but then wider again to his family in which there is amazing grace and redemption. And then wider still, a whole nation. So that question's always there. And it's it's very much there in our own experiences. And that's why we thought this is a story written, you know, where it was written, it probably occurred, you know, 1600, 1700 years before Christ. So an almost 4,000 year old story here. And my goodness, it's bang up to date. You couldn't have, you know, some of, some of the storylines here is like East Ender stuff, duh, 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 because it is just so dramatic. It's amazing. And yeah, and I think what's key in what you said there was you, you, you said, is it possible for God to make a change in my life? And, and that for me is interesting in terms of choosing the triumph of grace. It's not the triumph of hard work. It's not the triumph of good luck. It's not the triumph of making the best of your situation, is it? It's the triumph of grace. And that's that's been really interesting, even in the last five, 10 minutes, just, just thinking about perhaps that perhaps some of that, the scope of that story is about saying, the triumph of grace is true for Jacob. It's true for Isaac that we don't hear very much about. But actually, let's just look right down into the details of of, of the, the the year by year process of somebody's life. The triumph of grace is still something that's needed in in yeah. that. I wondered about the the triumph of grace thing as well. That one of the aspects of grace that we sometimes struggle with is the arbitrary nature of it. That the gift is given, the gift is given to some people and not to others. Well, it would appear that way. And um, Paul wrestles with this in, in Romans where he talks about, you know, some vessels destined for grace and some for wrath. And who are you to question the, the potter who does that? And 
I feel sorry for Joseph's brothers because why did he get chosen to be the one who had the dreams where they all they all bowed down to him? There's something random about this which is is quite disturbing. And I wonder also in the in this story, who would I rather be? Would I rather be Joseph or would I rather be Jacob? Do I want to be the one who has to go through all the the troubles and the trials? Actually, I think it is probably slightly better. To, Actually, I want to be Judah. That's who I want to be in the story. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think the brothers living with the guilt of that for such a long time. I wouldn't want. I wouldn't want that. I think in some ways, guilt is a worse thing to live with even than, than prison. But um, yeah, there, there's this something arbitrary. But what's interesting about the grace is it comes to one person at the start, which is Joseph, who gets down to Egypt, who gets exalted to this position. But by the end of the story, it's shared with the whole of the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the discovery of grace that actually it radiates out to everyone. And that's the great message, of course, of Paul, which is that grace, which begins with Jesus Christ and then moves to Israel, then moves to the whole earth. And maybe where the Joseph story slightly goes wrong is it becomes enclosed. You were talking about this a moment ago, Adrian, where it becomes enclosed back into the tribe. And and what, what has to happen is it has to get busted out. So in one sense, triumph of grace is about the triumph of providence. It's about the, the idea that you can be in really difficult situations, but good things will eventually happen. It's... Um, you know, if um, all things work together for good and if it hasn't worked out for good yet, then it's not the end of the story. It's that kind of thing. But also it's the triumph of grace because it expands to more and more people. And I, th I think that's very uh, a very big yeah. part. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the, the title itself came from Jason, you know, the illustrator of, of this book. Um, and, you know, it's his story to tell, but, but very much his feeling was that in the Joseph story was a resonance of his own story of things that had happened in his life and his family that were not good. Um, and yet somehow God has moved in his life to bring good and blessing to him and through him. So so the triumph of grace, on, on the one hand, um, I think as, as he was looking to do a book for children, it was very much picking up the Harry Potter and the, <laughs> you know, type thing. So, you know, if it, if it wins, you know, jump on, jump on there. But, but very much the title that he came up with, this is what happens in Joseph's story. And it's exactly as you say, Neil, the amazing thing about God's grace is it shows up in someone's life and then it ripples out. And until the end, and actually in the book, one of the amazing things that happens is is that we represent in the book, or as Jason was illustrations, there's a grace line that goes through it, and it's this dotted. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So that one. is the grace line, and it comes through the book, and it's dotted through, and, and, and it's always there. But there's parts of the story and parts of the biblical text as we read through Joseph in which God seems strangely absent, and of course, that is our experience, isn't it, too? But but it's always there. God is always there working out his grace. We can't always see what it is. We can't always feel the impact. Sometimes it feels like like I'm experiencing God's anti-grace. It's something other than grace. Mm. Um, and yet as it comes through, and then what begins to happen is this orange builds, and, and Jason's favorite color is orange. That's why we've got orange and we worked with it. But it worked really well as a visual so that the grace builds so that towards that end, and as he sees the crescendo of the story in, in the illustrated part of things, it's that moment that, you know, you intended it for evil, he says to your brothers, but God intended it for good. And what you get on the page then is, is it all goes orange. The whole page goes orange. It, it's a tidal wave that comes out. And of course, that's the thing, isn't it? 
that's what grace is. It's what we get from God in the Old Testament all the way through and wonderfully rolling out from Jesus. That's what we get. And it spreads to every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every language. And it's like this tidal wave. And we see it in our own communities too. Someone experiences God's grace and the blessings that God has poured out into their lives can't be contained and good thing then roll out to other people too. So that's where the orange comes from. <laughs> that's where the title comes from. Um, and it's this sense of, 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 of our story resonating with, with this God's big story. Um, and uh, I think he's illustrated it beautifully. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I, I think what that's done is it's set beautifully, it's set up this series for us talking about it on, on the podcast. Um, worth saying that the resource the resource itself is it's not aimed at children particularly? No. I mean, this is, this is one where, uh, you know, yes, children, but yes, uh, teenagers and, and all the way up. We always feel, I mean, Dear Theo, which was another resource, as is Luke and Acts, which Jason had illustrated before, we worked on him on that project. Um, we produced it for children and young people. But actually, people said this is just fantastic to read as a Bible with the illustrations. So just you know, in terms of the book, what it is, is the first part is an illustrated whole of Joseph's story, brilliantly done, and his, his, his amazing detail in these things. And then the second part is the entire text of, of Genesis. And then we link through in terms of emphasizing where the links are so people can read backwards and forwards. So it's a double reading of of, of, of the text using illustrations. But no, it's... It's for anyone who wants to get in the Bible. And so if, you know, if you're one of these folk, you know, I was chatting about earlier, not in church, you know, um, you know you're not a Christian. And, uh, you know, this is produced as a book. It's beautiful. So, I mean, it's, it's big and it's square. I'm still waiting for the box to arrive. It's just just actually hot off the press. Um, but, but it's stunning. And it's for anyone that wants to just open the Bible. And, and we were just talking about art earlier on, you know, Rembrandt, you know, opens the Bible for us afresh. So Jason's illustrations do that. They help yeah. us slow down the text when we look at his illustrations. So for any ages, so yes, it looks like a youth resource, but it could be for everyone. Alongside that too, I, I should mention quickly, two other resources, if that's okay, Fiona. And um, with the book, you get something called the Joseph Journal. Um, so an 11 page book. And the idea behind that is, let's look at um, Joseph's story. Then look at biblical overview. Uh, what's what's the big God's big story? And then let's look at our own lives. You know, how does our story fit into this? So very much applying the Bible and looking at for it to be there. So that's the second resource. Um, and the final one is called Grace Gatherings. This is like the bit before the Joseph story. So we're looking at grace in nine points of the story in Genesis up to that. Jen, as ever, has produced these resources. And, and uh, she's not here and she wouldn't say it, but she's such an incredible talent for pulling these things mm -hmm. together, for yeah. allowing all ages together. And really, that's for the summer. That'll launch in just in a week or so. Free downloads on the Scottish Bible Society website. And we're looking at different uh, uh, stories, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, um, uh, Jacob, you know, wh where's the grace in their lives? And then you can do that as a, as a family, you can do that as a church, you know, you can do that um, with your youth group, just conversations around the Bible with activities as well. So nine things for the summer and, and for the autumn. So those three resources, which have probably taken far too long to tell people about, but they are wonderful and we're no, very that's, excited that's, about them. That's great. So so the two, so, so Joseph's journal comes with Joseph's journal comes with Joseph and the Triumph Grace. You in hard copy, and the family Grace Gatherings. We're calling Genesis, them. Those are down. Yeah, so Grace Gatherings that's downloadable from the website. They'll be available right. shortly. And how do people get hold of Joseph and the Triumph of Grace then? 
go to the website uh, you can order them you can order anything from one copy all, all the way up so it is four pounds including postage and packaging um, and uh, it is a big book so the postage and packaging is quite a bit of that um, but it is absolutely beautiful it'll look a bit like a coffee table book uh, within things but it's a sort of thing you know that, that you'll just want to pick up and 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 read and as I say I'm I'm waiting at any moment there was a ring of the doorbell a few moments ago and I thought is my, my box arriving and I thought wouldn't that be wonderful if it was I mean, that would have been a that would have been a very well timed delivery, <laughs> wouldn't it? Unlike most of the other deliveries, uh, fantastic. That sounds interesting. And and for the next four episodes, we're going to be delving into that story. So obviously, if people want to get hold of a copy of that and read not from any other Bible, but from from this particular um, copy, then they'll, they'll, a lot of what we're talking about will make more sense as we as we do that. And um, just before we finish, so we don't we don't have Jen's gems this week because Jen's not here. But Adrian, I would love you to bring your A game. Give us your A list. Do your triple A announcement. I, I, well, you said to me something about we didn't include Genesis thirty eight in the, the the Triumph of Grace book, and there were a number of reasons for that. And I was saying, as I've read through the story, that has been the the, the chapter that's really kind of captivated me afresh. The story of yeah. Judah, Judah and Tamar. What is going on there? And instead of Jen's gems this week, you're going to give us a little A list summary of what you think is going on in chapter thirty. Yeah. Thanks, Fiona. Well, over the coming weeks, as we have been this morning, we're going to talk a lot about Joseph. But of course, skillfully weaved into his story is another story of grace about another brother, and that's Judah. And as the biblical story goes on, it's Judah's descendants who will take center stage in God's plans. Now, chapter 37, Joseph's story's just kicked off. He's been sold into slavery. Incidentally, that was Judah's suggestion. His brothers have convinced their dad, Jacob, that Joseph is dead. But Joseph is, in fact, alive, and he's heading off to Egypt with these the night traders. The action is just starting. So why why interrupt that with this very disturbing chapter about mm. Judas, Judah sorry, and Tamar? Well, it's all because of what God is going to work in and through Judah's life. Now, chapter 38, when we get to it, is full of awful things and awful things that mainly Judah is doing. So the first thing he does is he leaves Jacob's family. He heads off to Adullam. He meets some bloke and marries said bloke's daughter, daughter called Shua. Now, she's a Canaanite woman alarm bells. Always a no-no in the Bible. The Canaanites are the people that are going to lead God's people astray. So that's not a good thing. But Judah and, and, and Shua, they settle down. They have three sons, Er, Oren, and Shelah. Er marries at Tamar. Now, Er is wicked in the Lord's eyes and he dies. And then what Oren does is wicked in the Lord's eyes and he dies too. So it's looking pretty dodgy for Judah and Shua's succession. They've only got one son left. He's quite young, so they're kind of protective of him. But in the middle of all this is poor Tamar, handed from brother to brother and then sent packing to her dad's house with a false promise that she can marry Shelah when he grows up, the youngest brother. But then Shua, Judah's wife, Judah's wife dies, and it's clear that Shelah isn't going to be offered in marriage. Tamar then takes things into her own hands. She disguises herself, and you couldn't make this up, as a prostitute, solicits and sleeps with Judah, her father-in-law, who amazingly has no clue that it's her. And then when it's discovered that Tamar is pregnant and it's by Judah, you know, uh, Judah says that she's got to die for committing adultery. And then Tamar has to have a quiet word and saying, oh, by the way, you're the dad. Now, whereupon they settle down, it seems, and Tamar has twin sons, Perez and Zerah. Now, in the Joseph story, all the brothers need God's grace. But it turns out that it's Judah who is going to experience the most dramatic change. 
So in Genesis 43, later on in the story, it's Judah is the one that takes leadership responsibility and reasons with J Jacob about going back to Egypt for more food, despite the danger that they know they're going to face there with this leader, Joseph, who, who they don't quite know it's him yet. And it's Judah. This is the one who suggested that he would sell his brother into slavery. It's this Judah who in Genesis 44 is the one who will offer his own life in exchange for Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And why does he do that? Because he's so concerned about the impact on his father, Jacob. And this is the Jacob who had been quite willing to deceive and cheat and actually leave and abandon before. So when we get to the end of the story in Genesis 49, as Jacob blesses his sons, it, Joseph gets a great blessing, yes, but it's Judah who's the star of the show. We read that Judah, your brothers will praise you. It says the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Now we get glimpses in these words of Jacob of two great descendants of Judah, King David, and Jesus. Well, these descendants don't come from Judah's third son, Shelah. No, no. They come from Perez, who Tamar bears, the daughter-in-law who bears them for Judah, her father-in-law. And so it is, through, as we read in the story of Joseph, Judah experienced the grace of God. Judah is somehow changed and transformed by God in all he passes through. And in the goodness of God, it's this rotten chap, Judah, and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who he has discarded and treated so incredibly badly, they are woven into the biblical story. They're given center stage. They get top billing because they're the ancestors of both great King David and great King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this grace, of course, we see the possibility of grace for us all, that somehow in the messiness of our lives, all the things that are going wrong, all the things that have been done wrong to us, God is working in grace and he's working in grace to transform us. And somehow in the grace of God, he weaves our story with all its brokenness into his great story for our blessing, but crucially for the blessing of others. So while we talk about Joseph a lot over these coming weeks, let's not miss the transformation that God works in the life of Judah. So that's why chapter 30 is important. So many people come to this part of the Bible, the critical scholars, and say, these Bible people were quite thick. They didn't know what they were doing. But it is astonishingly crafted together as a piece of literature, beautifully put together. It's pitch perfect. And it's all about what God is going to accomplish through Judah. So the star of the show is not really Joseph. It's Judah. It's Judah. But of course, the star of the show is always God and what he does for us, isn't it? Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, Adrian. That was so helpful. Um, yeah, thinking about that, I was really struck by Perez, actually, when I did the, the stuff on Ruth last year, because, of course, Perez is mentioned in the book of Ruth. And, and again, it feels slightly out of out of the story. Like, Why is this guy getting a mention in, the, in the, the final verses? And then, of course, when you trace it back, it's 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 that little line. It's, we were talking about lines of grace, weren't we? Just popping up in the story of Ruth, in the story of another woman who is an outsider who's who's woven into the story as well. Yeah, interesting. Neil, you had something you wanted to add in on that. Yeah, you you said I I um I loved what you said there, Adrian. Thank you. And I'm just, I'm just thinking about it because it's such a I totally agree with you. It's such an integral part of the Joseph story, and it's very deliberate why it's there. 
Um, you'd, you'd mentioned about, you know, that always the alarm bells go off when people go off with Canaanite women. Um, but of course, that story as well, as well gets redeemed. And it gets redeemed by yeah. Tamar, who, who mm -hmm. actually turns out to be the great blessing. And, and then later, of course, in, um, in the Ruth story, which you just mentioned there, uh, Fiona, mm -hmm. um, it says, may the woman who comes into your house, Ruth, be like Tamar. That's right. And then when That's Matthew true. tells That's his right. story of Jesus, he has five women in there. And they are, of course, uh, Rahab, Ruth, Mary, Bathsheba, and the fifth one is Tamar. And these are yeah. all, with the exception of Mary, these are all foreign women uh, who, well, we don't know about Bathsheba, but she might be, um, who who redeem this this reputation as well. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And that, that, of course, is one of the great messages that's there, that if in our lives we are feeling cast aside, if people have treated us badly, um, if, if we're feeling entirely bypassed by the story of life that's going on for everybody else, but that doesn't seem to be going on for us, and we think we are unnoticed and unvalued because people have treated us so incredibly badly and things just haven't worked out, then God, in saying this and just shining a light on these women, is saying, mm -hmm. you know, you may feel like this, but I have my eye upon you and you matter to me, and he elevates them. And the fact that these women are celebrated tells us something about the redeeming grace of God, that every single one of us matters, that we might be cast aside by everyone, even our own families, as happened for Tamar. But you're not cast aside by God. You're integral to his plans, and in his grace, he is bringing you into his great story, and he wants to bless you, that you might be a blessing to others which makes me think about the Magnificat, but let's mm. not let's not go yeah. down that route as well. So let me just bring things to a close. Um, can I get you to give us one sentence takeaway? What what has struck you and jumped out at you today? <laughs> one sentence takeaway equals we've talked too much. Make this one short. Okay, here's my one sentence takeaway. Um, life has a yellow line. Nice. Adrian. Um. I'm I'm struck by the fact that was what Neil said earlier, um, that grace comes into an individual's life, but it flows into others' lives and then impacts a whole nation. So so grace comes and then it builds in our lives. I love that, and I I loved what you said at the end about just in those very last uh, sentences actually that that you may feel that you've been overlooked and, and, and not seen, but God has, God has seen and God has a, a plan that makes you integral to his plan. So that, that is a beautiful thing to go away and think about. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for, for having me along. It's just been a joy to be here. Uh, I mean, we'd you. like you to come back even when Jen's not unwell. Well, would, thank you. Would you, you do that? I would, I, would, I would love to do that. Um, I fear that I talk far too much. And so no one will get a word in edgeways if you invite I mean, me. So You're amongst um, friends here. <laughs> thank you. And, and friends, of course, can say, Armstrong, zip it. And you should. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are going to draw things to a close. Next time, we're going to be talking about Genesis 37. So we're going to go right into the, the beginning of the story and uh, think about the family relationships, think about what happens to Joseph, think about the dreams and how God speaks to him there. So join us next time on The Outspoken Bible. Thank you in the meantime to Adrian Armstrong and to Neil Glover and we'll see you next time. 